since then, it has been just tremendously gratifying to see the field literally explode. Welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. In today's episode, we are thrilled to welcome Michael Johnston. Michael is a professor emeritus of political science at Colgate University. In the interview, Michael looks back on more than 30 years of academic research in the field of anti-corruption, and he also discusses what lessons we have learned. So without further ado, over to the interview between Michael Johnston and Matthew Stevenson. Greetings, this is Matthew Stevenson, and I am thrilled to have as our guest on the podcast today, Michael Johnston, who is a professor of political science emeritus at Colgate University and is one of the leading academic experts on corruption and anti-corruption. I've been following his work for many years, ever since I got into this area, and I'm really uh, thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with him today on the podcast and to share his expertise with our listeners. So, um, Michael, welcome to the to the podcast. Well, it's my privilege. I follow the blog very closely and uh, really have uh, learned a great deal from uh, uh, virtually all the participants in it. It's uh, an excellent sort of way to keep the debate going and keep it fresh uh, without having to go through all of the delays that, that are involved in uh, publication and such. So I think it's uh, um, a real contribution to our field. Well, terrific. Thank, thanks so much. I know what you mean about the length of uh, time to get academic pieces published, but that's a talk conversation for another day. Maybe the best way to kick off our conversation, I think, would be perhaps for you to share with our listeners how you got into this field originally, because you were writing about corruption, anti-corruption back in the early 1980s, when, of course, it was an mm -hmm. issue that people involved in politics and activism were, were aware of. But from, from the perspective of academic study, There had been a little bit of work in the 1960s and early 1970s associated right. with modernization theory. You know, people like Samuel Huntington and Gunnar Myrtle were writing mm -hmm. a little bit about it. But my perception is, at least in the American Academy, in the late 1970s and early 1980s, it was not nearly as prominent a subfield mm -hmm. as it is now. So I'd love to know a little bit more about what led you to this topic uh, when you started it and how your thinking and research on the topic developed. <laughs> That uh, perception of yours is absolutely accurate. And in fact, the uh, latest book that I have out uh, with uh, Scott Fritzen, it's called The Conundrum of Corruption. Note, I'm subtly working in a, a plug for the book here. Um, begins with an anecdote, a letter I got, and this is in the late 1980s, from a panel chair uh, for an upcoming American Political Science Association annual meeting, uh, who saying, thank you for your uh, proposal for my section of the proposal of a panel. However, we're only talking about major questions of theoretical and political significance. Corruption is not that kind of question, so we will not <laughs> accept your uh, panel proposal. This was in the late 1980s. Interestingly enough, that uh, uh, panel chair later on did publish an article on corruption, which I thought was fine. But in my case, um, it really began in the mid-1970s. I was doing my uh, doctoral dissertation on ethnic politics um, um, in New Haven, as I uh, did not go very far to do my field work. And uh, there was a political machine piece to that, and there was a patronage piece to that. And uh, I was getting more and more curious about corruption and reading uh, James Scott's book on the side. And then Watergate happened. 
happened at the same time. And I was kind of wondering, do these cases have anything in common? And you know, the answer was yes and no, but what more can we ask? And uh, from that, uh, the corruption thing uh, uh, developed as an interest. And I think my, my first published work on this was uh, something that appeared in about 1978 or 79 on patronage. And so that's been a, a kind of a, an obsession ever since. Um, since then, it has been just tremendously gratifying to see the field literally explode, especially after the late 1980s, early 1990s, and uh, to see um, whole new generations of younger scholars. In fact, by now, there have been at least two of them, two generations coming along, just doing wonderful work and, uh, you know, showing that there's a, a great deal that I need to rethink as well. So it's been a very rewarding uh, situation, uh, field of study, one in which I don't have very many answers, but I've certainly derived a lot of intellectual pleasure and challenges. So from what you just, just said, is it fair to say that your focus began as a little bit more of a domestic U.S. politics focus and then yeah. broadened out? Because I, I you know, came to your work first in the context of international corruption. And is, yeah. is, am I understanding correctly that you're originally looking at patronage and ethics issues and so forth in the U.S. domestic political context? And it was that that led you to a, a broader global perspective? That's where it started. And I think there is a certain amount of following the path of least resistance because there really was not much interest on the part of editors and uh, journalists, journals in um, American political science uh, about corruption in the American political system. It was not thought to be a, a, a serious kind of question. And about that same time, um, people at uh, the major um, international organizations, intergovernmental organizations, and so forth, were getting uh, more and more interested in in the topic, and they looked around for people to do some work. And I was uh, looking to uh, uh, broaden my reference, and so that's where the international dimension came from. And now I would say mostly that the American case has sort of you know has receded into one case in one of my categories, and uh, I hope that means that. I've uh, got it in a somewhat uh, more uh, accurate perspective. So when you talk about one case in one of your categories, are you referring to the, um, the system or the typology that I know some of your work has attempted to construct to understand uh, different mm -hmm. forms of corruption? I mean, of course, corruption, like a lot of categories that we use in social science, is a broad concept. Mm -hmm. It includes a lot of different things within it. And I know that one of the things that you've tried to do in your work is to kind of organize the concept in a way that it's still a manageable, simplifying category, but that consists of sufficiently distinctive subcategories that we don't conflate mm -hmm. things that are, are notably different. Is that what you were getting at just a moment ago? That would that would be um, accurate. And it, it's a little bit uh, based on discontent with the um, the literal interpretation of corruption indices too. Now, I mean, let me say that the TI index, the World Bank, World Governance Indicators, those have been tremendously useful. I use them myself and they help keep the issue in focus, especially in places where the government of the day had rather we talked about something else. Uh, but at the same time, it's difficult if we really sit down and think about it to buy into the implicit assumption that corruption is the same thing in Denmark and in Mexico and in Uganda. It just varies in amounts in some sense, especially when we really uh, don't have valid and reliable ways of measuring amounts. And it seemed like there were uh, contrasts that had to be taken into account. Some kinds of corruption following Huntington could arguably be seen as alternatives to violence. Others rely heavily upon violence. Some 
Most, in fact, are economically disruptive. A few varieties uh, are economically integrative, at least among the, the privileged elites, and, and so on and so forth. And so my uh, effort and the, the four syndromes of corruption I've referenced here are sort of about the third or fourth attempt that I've made, was an attempt to distinguish among varieties in ways that would bring out some variation, but not flatten out the, the concept, not flatten out the categories of it. Now, whether um, I succeeded at that, I don't know. I think what the, uh, uh, the syndromes did do was to uh, start at least some debate on uh, qualitative uh, variations in uh, the kinds of corruption problems societies have. Now, I think some of our listeners might be familiar with the language that you're just using of syndromes of corruption, which was the term that you used, and your four main syndromes. I think maybe not all of our listeners will be as familiar with your prior work. So without asking you to summarize the whole rich treatment that you provide in your book, can you just give the capsule summary of what you mean by syndromes of corruption and what the four major syndromes that you've identified are? Right. Well, the, the, uh, the quick version of it is that the syndromes of corruption are shaped by the degree of openness or lack of it in political and economic arenas and the strength and quality of institutions that uh, both define and restrain and at the same time enable those arenas to, uh, to thrive. And it, I used in the uh, original research some indicators and a number of case studies. The risk, of course, is that once you have your data in hand, you begin to see the case studies in, in consistent ways with the data. I've, I've tried to avoid that. But uh, that led me to think in terms of uh, four major syndromes. And, uh, you know, in, in time, it maybe we'll be talking about six of them and only two will be mine or, or whatever. But, um, you know, I think I see around the world, first of all, something that I call official moguls. These are people or a dictator or a junta ruling more or less with impunity and using uh, you know, wealth to uh, both to line its own pockets and to uh, serve as, as patronage. And, and what characterizes that is you know, very weak institutions. A second uh, category, um, oligarchs and clans. Here we have, again, very weak institutions, but in the official moguls category, there's no doubt who's in charge. In the oligarchs and clans case, it's not clear that anyone's in charge. So we're talking about the difference between, say, Saudi Arabia on the one hand and 1990s Russia um, on the other. And I, I cite these as examples and not to, you know, not to single out societies for criticism, but as uh, uh, what they might tell us about the larger categories. A third category called uh, uh, the elite cartels. And here you have moderately strong institutions. You have democratizing uh, societies or relatively recent, recently democratized and, and marketized societies in which you have uh, an old elite hanging on, you know, fighting a rear guard action, using corruption uh, to uh, uh, solidify its position. And these are often sort of loose coalitions of various sorts of elites. If you look at South Korea, especially in the 90s and early in this century, you know, th those elites consisted of military, business, academic, um, media, and, and, and others in uh, fairly tight-knit kinds of alignments. Now, what those do, among other things, is they provide a sort of de facto degree of uh, predictability. 
um, not good governance by anybody's definition, but uh, perhaps enough predictability, enough stability to attract investors and make them feel secure. And so you have cases like South Korea and others in which major economic growth has coexisted along with uh, really extensive corruption. Finally, you get to a category um, that I called uh, influence markets. And these are the you know, established liberal democracies. Um, liberalization of the political and economic system is a, a fait accompli. But you still have corruption issues uh, arising. It would be a mistake to think of the influence markets category as a residual, um, in fact, anything but, because the uh, corruption that starts out in the United States, uh, Western Europe, and so forth, has a way of spreading around the world on the back of various kinds of global market mechanisms and so forth, and becomes uh, very important even in societies whose domestic corruption is, is quite different. And so uh, these are the United States, Western Europe, and so forth. And what's interesting, too, is here's where we find a lot of what um, Dennis Thompson, for example, Lawrence Lessig, called institutional corruption. Institutional corruption often taking place not in defiance of the law and institutions, but in fact aided and abetted by taking place through the law and institutions. And um, getting at the, uh, uh, the situations of uh, people feeling, as, as Mark Warren termed it, excluded uh, in duplicitous ways from decisions that affect their lives, even though the law is not being broken. Thus, as one example, political contributions in the United States, are, are they corrupt in a legal sense? Well, mostly no. But they contribute to a situation in which people feel excluded uh, from decisions that they ought to be able to participate in. And that's a, a serious kind of corruption problem. This is very useful. The conceptual frame, framework is, I think, helpful in, as we were discussing earlier, taking the corruption, which is a huge category that includes a lot of things, and sorting it into subcategories mm-hmm. that are... Um, still pretty big, right? Like there's probably a lot of subdivision with each of these subcategories, but a little bit more uh, of a refined understanding of what the political and economic dynamics are that we're interested in. I suppose that a question one might have flowing from this, particularly for our more uh, pragmatically oriented listeners, is is what follows from this. So with respect to any broad phenomenon, we can chop it up in different ways and we can come up with different typologies and categorizations and, and, and so forth. But again, someone might wonder, okay, so suppose that I'm an anti-corruption activist or reform organization or reformist politician in a given country or society, and I want to fight corruption. And one of the things that I imagine you would say to such a person is it's kind of important to figure out which is the principal syndrome of corruption that characterizes your society or jurisdiction or what have you. And if this imaginary person says to you something like, well, well, why? What, what mm-hmm. follows from that? What, at a high level of generality, which is, of course, where we're, where we're talking, what are the implications? What's the, the prescription that follows from recognizing that I'm in category one or two or three or four? Can you say a little bit more mm-hmm. about that? I think there's a, a fair amount to be said. And one of the things that the, the process you're talking about invites is more input and more uh, from people who know the society in a granular, on-the-ground way, and uh, more value being placed upon their experiences and, and upon their insights. But you know, just one example, in the 
early 90s, it was taken as, uh, as gospel that privatization and decentralization, uh, for example, um, were sort of universally applicable kinds of anti-corruption remedies. And so uh, um, we, and I include myself in this, um, you know, went into places like Russia and said, all right, let's decentralize, let's privatize. Well, that played right into the hands of the oligarchs and, and the clans and privatization processes became a major vehicle of shifting huge national assets into just a few hands for, you know, a few kopecks on the ruble, if you will. Um, and uh, we probably added, uh, we poured, probably poured gasoline uh, on, on the fire uh, in that sense. In the United States, should we, you know, enact more laws or should we look at that uh, sense of exclusion that people have? I mean, there we could learn a great deal, I think, by uh, looking to the demagogues, looking to the uh, quote unquote populists and the uh, discontents they're addressing, because many of those discontents are similar to the ones attached to corruption. Uh, they may be sending us signals about how we could mobilize our following uh, better. So I think that's, uh, uh, that's another thing that, uh, uh, that follows. What the scheme does not lead to is, and I wish it did, would be four separate, you know, anti-corruption cookbooks, you know, or, or insert tab A into slot B. Um, it doesn't work that way, but I think that the scheme highlights groups that have to be uh, addressed, uh, grievances that uh, are critical to the situation, uh, risks in the uh, the systems, uh, some of which look like reforms, i.e. Uh, uh, privatization, and um, maybe is a way to, uh, to sort of put up caution signs around things we might otherwise decide naturally are the right things to do. So let me follow up on the example that you gave of privatization and decentralization, in part because I'm interested in that example, but in part, I'm trying to nail down the claim that you were just making about the role that the identification of the syndromes plays in understanding the way to respond to corruption problems. And your, your point just a moment ago, that the objective is not to come up with four separate cookbooks is well taken, or maybe that, is, that was the objective, but like, that's not a realistic objective. <laughs> I, I totally work. get that. At the same time, just to take that privatization decentralization example, there are a couple different ways I think one could interpret the statement that you just made. One is that if the type of corruption that the society were confronting were a different syndrome from mm -hmm. the one that was being confronted by Russia and other post-Soviet, post-socialist countries in the 1990s, then in fact, decentralization and privatization would have been an appropriate response to the kind of corruption that took place in those societies. Mm -hmm. yeah. But given the nature of the corruption syndrome that we're confronting, that was in fact mm -hmm. the wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. Another way to understand the claim though, is not that we need to kind of match the anti-corruption strategy to the syndrome, but it was just a more generic, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, a more, maybe no, I should say a more general claim that we like really need to be careful and look at the particular incentives and who stands to win, who stands to lose. And that very often, mm -hmm. generally, privatization and decentralization can be extremely hazardous when the corrupt forces are able to capture the process. So yeah. maybe, maybe I'm framing it a little bit of an unfair artificial way, but those were two different possible interpretations I think one mm -hmm. could get, give to the example that you advanced before. And I'd love for you to say a little bit more about which is what you meant. Yeah, I, 
I'm going trying to resist saying uh, both, but I, th- I think I hear a lot in both uh, uh, approaches to agree with. I mean, I could make a case that what was a lousy idea, even though we thought it was wonderful stuff, in Russia uh, would uh, play out very differently, say, in South Korea or in, in, in Mexico in, uh, in, in the 1990s or uh, uh, perhaps, even, uh, perhaps even Indonesia. The other interpretation is I think that the, uh, just the level of the problem we're talking about, corruption as a, you know, as a national problem measurable by a national number subject to national uh, reforms and exhibiting national trends is something that we really need to rethink. I think if I hear correctly, your emphasis on who within the society is getting the upper hand on whom, that's absolutely essential. It's essential to the way people experience corruption as an issue. It's essential to the political landscape that reformers have to understand and uh, and deal with as they uh, as they go with it, go into a country. And you know, and we may find that uh, you know, in, in a given country, maybe there are two or three different syndromes in different sectors at different levels. But uh, the, a more detailed and granular approach uh, would be better. Let me ask you another question about the syndromes and the disaggregation of corruption into different categories. It actually relates a little bit to the point you were just making about corruption aggregated to the national level, obscuring important uh, intranational variation in the corruption level. This is the point that a lot of people have made. We can get variation by subnational region. We can get variation by different departments or different sectors. Like there's huge amounts of variation, but there's this effort to aggregate to the national level. And of course, with respect to the, I have the big corruption indexes like the Transparency International or World Worldwide Governance Indicators indexes, or just more qualitative attempts to compare countries with respect to their level of corruption. There's a sense that we can do comparisons across jurisdictions with respect to their over, the overall level or severity of the corruption there. So again, a couple different ways to interpret what we should learn from your insight about syndromes of corruption, uh, as well as your observation about the fact that national level measures obscure subnational variation. One is that these things aren't comparable, right? That it's actually a mistake to try to even rank countries, even in a loose sense and with error, based on their level of corruption when you're dealing with jurisdictions that are experiencing sufficiently different syndromes of corruption? How can you even say that the United States is more or less corrupt than Russia, for example, because the syndrome of corruption in each country is different? Another way to understand the claim is that really the claim is that there's variation in the manifestation of corruption or the forms that it takes, but still there is a coherent umbrella concept called corruption such that social scientists can still proceed to run their regressions and international organizations can still proceed to do their loose rankings and so forth. Because like we can still say, for example, Russia is more corrupt than the United States, even though the Russian syndrome of corruption is not the same as the American syndrome of corruption. And again, I just want to try to nail you down on the nature of the claim that you're making? Is it kind of a fundamental incommensurability claim? Or is it more like, even if we can do the cross-national comparisons, once we get down to the nitty-gritty of designing policy responses, it's not enough to just know how bad is the corruption problem. We also need to know a little bit more about the nature of the corruption problem in that particular jurisdiction. Quite right. And I think, especially with your, your latter formulation, and I think the ultimate core of the concept is the imbalance of power that lets some people exploit others. 
Um, and that's not a, you know, a, a governance question as such. It's a justice question. It's a political question. Uh, it's something that uh, measuring the, you know, uh, penetration of the private sector into the public is, is not going to uh, necessarily shed much light upon. But we need to, um, you know, understand the dynamics at, at that level. And I think one of the problems is that uh, the way policy is formulated, formulated uh, with, you know, northern and western governments, you know, with the best of motives, I think I would say, trying to deal with corruption for not necessarily with developing countries. And, you know, the way that has to work is that you work your aid through the other, uh, you know, the other country's national government. And so a national uh, sort of frame of reference is, uh, is entirely uh, um, justified. And indeed, it's compelled. If you look at that power imbalance, though, approach, I mean, that sort of suggests maybe from the bottom up that in, um, you know, in Russia, we're looking at a uh, corruption problem far more disruptive, far more unjust than what we have here, not uh, to, to minimize what we have here, and that uh, it manifests itself in, you know, in, in hundreds of different, uh, different ways, such that formulating any kind of national policy, any kind of national action plan, um, it's, a, it's a noble effort, but uh, it, it's going to miss more than, uh, than it addresses. And so um, I think at the very least, well, I think the sort of anti-corruption industry that has evolved has tried to do good things, and in many places maybe has done good things. In other places, uh, it's trying to reform something that we can't measure that exists at a different set of levels uh, from what we understand, uh, using tools that don't address the ultimate roots of corruption and uh, um, working with constituencies who, whose interests are very different from those of citizens on the ground. So, uh, you know, no wonder we have this lasting debate about whether or not uh, the reform movement has failed. The reform movement is still literally trying to find its way and figure out what it's trying to do. Yeah, when you talk about this debate about whether the reform movement has failed, I assume you're referring to like the anti-corruption reform movement generally. And it, of course, that movement, just like corruption is not one thing, that movement right. is not one thing. There have no. been international efforts led by transnational NGOs like Transparency International and international organizations like the World Bank. Um, but there have also been in many countries domestic anti-corruption reform efforts, some of them real like grassroots populist efforts, some that are more elite-led. That's a huge, but I, I'm with you. Like, there's definitely been a change since when you started working on these issues in the late 1970s, and early 1980s to now. And I would, if I had to pinpoint a time period when it looks like that movement really starts to emerge as a movement, I would say mid to late 1990s mm -hmm. is to me mm -hmm. when it really starts to come into its own yeah. Yeah. Uh, and develop since then. But you referenced... Um, this debate over whether that movement has has failed. Can you say a little bit more about your own perspective on that? You also used the term in your last response, the anti-corruption industry, which at least in some mm -hmm. circles has a kind of pejorative connotation. And I'm not sure <laughs> right. if that was deliberate on your part or not. Mm -hmm. But can you say a little bit about your perspective on this, mm -hmm. you know, I would say now about 25 years, maybe we've got a generation really, um, mm -hmm. when this has been at the forefront of the transnational policy agenda and has really picked up steam at the domestic level. You know, when you started doing this world, you were, you were working in, in, a, in a world where people kind of didn't want to pay attention to this issue. And now a lot of people want to pay attention to this issue. But what do you think? I mean, what do you think if you had to kind of give your bird's eye view tally of mm -hmm. what this anti-corruption movement has 
accomplished, what it's done well, what it has failed to do, or ways in which it has been, in some cases, maybe even counterproductive. I'd love to yeah. love to hear your perspective. Yeah. Well, working into that question from the back end, one thing it has done is it's put the issue on the agenda. And you know, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, it was not on the agenda. It was not taken seriously. Um, there wasn't a, a, a JAB blog there. Uh, you know, Transparency International was a, a group of anti-corruption cranks in a little room in Berlin. You know, and the, uh, the issue was, uh, was not on the agenda. I worried for a long time that it was going to be the flavor of the month, but uh, there's been a lot of months going around, going by, and the uh, the flavor is still there. Uh, anti-corruption is now a central issue on the international policy agenda, and that's an accomplishment that uh, is not to be dismissed. The emergence of the industry reflects success, and it also um, is the source of, of some failings. I mean, the industry is there in part because the amount of money available now is, is much, much larger. The amount of elite attention and its place of uh, the issue on the agenda is um, um, is much, much greater. It's dealing often with uh, governments and international organizations that, that want quick answers, you know, sort of what do we do about corruption or what do we do about corruption in X or something like that? Uh, let's have a grand new, uh, grand big, great big conference in, in London and we'll come out with a proclamation and, uh, you know, somehow we have, uh, have changed anything. Um, I mean, the industry copes with those sorts of expectations that are not the most helpful thing either. At the same time, the industry is hegemonic. Uh, the industry is invested in its own perspective and in its own analysis and changing the direction of the mainstream anti-corruption debate is like turning a super tanker, uh, to borrow a much hackneyed uh, metaphor. Um, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of, a lot of effort. It happens, um, it happens very slowly. Uh, so the industry has a way of, you know, when it goes into a region, when it goes into a country, lays out its stall, what's there is remarkably similar to what's there anywhere else. You know, we're all for accountability. We're all for transparency, transparency being often taken as a, uh, synonym for reform itself. Uh, we're all for compliance, compliance by whom with what, and so forth. And the the remedies, the prescriptions don't really vary all that much. Do they, they don't really, in my view, seem to convey a recognition that we're not necessarily talking about the same family of problems. As for failure, no, no, not failure. At the same time, the industry sort of has a way of chasing its own tail in, in some respects because uh, um, it does what it takes to get uh, more funding and more attention and then proceeds along the, uh, the lines that it's proceeded without at times changing very much and uh, you know, more, <laughs> more funding and more attention uh, are, uh, are needed. So there have been some exceptions to that. Now, I mean, uh, let's be fair. Transparency International has undergone a period of, of soul searching. And uh, from a uh, stance in, oh, say about 20 years ago, when it was really strongly resistant to criticism, um, is now very open in its approach and invites criticism, invites uh, critical input. Um, I think we all have a sense of humility uh now learned from you know from experience that we uh, that we didn't have before. Um, what I would like to see the movement do is think about why we're doing all this in the first place. Are we helping make societies uh, more just? Are we helping uh, uh, people arrange for better treatment, receive better treatment, better services from their governments, um, and and so forth? There are a variety of kinds of measures 
kind of a hobby horse of mine, but indicators of government performance that uh, we might very well uh, um, attend more closely to. If you take two jurisdictions, one of which is paying uh, 75% more than a sensible benchmark, whatever that might be, for common commodities like, uh, say, petrol or, uh, or concrete, uh, and you take another uh, that is paying uh, much closer to that benchmark, chances are there's, uh, you know, corruption is a bigger problem in the former case than in the latter. Or if you have a jurisdiction in which getting a building permit takes seven weeks and involves 35 steps versus one where it takes one week and involves six steps, again, we can make a pretty intelligent guess as to uh, where the corruption problem is greater. And we can, in many cases, depending upon if we have the right indicators, come up with an actionable sort of response. I mean, that's a clunky word, but, um, you know, a corruption perception figure, well, things are out of joint, but what do we do about it? The corruption perception index doesn't really tell us. Uh, On the other hand, if in a uh, given jurisdiction, they are engaging in regulatory inspections 50% more often than uh, than its neighbors, um, you know, there's a potential location for bribery, shakedowns, and so forth that that should be attended to. Um, So there's a, a level of analysis there that you know, some in the uh, in the industry or in the anti-corruption movement have bought into, and yet they run into a very strong resistance from uh, from the governments that uh, uh, that sponsor, pay for, and and have to in effect get political clearance for so much of, of the work. Um, a, a short story, and I'll I'll quit on that point. But some years ago, I was talking to an OECD meeting in Paris about these indicators and benchmarks. And uh, finished and took questions. The Irish delegate put up her hand and said, this is a very interesting scheme. And I'm, I'm feeling pretty good here about uh, that response. And then she says, of course, we're never going to do it. Oh, uh, <laughs> what now? Uh, and it turned out that people were afraid that it was yet another corruption index. Uh, they were afraid that it would be expensive and disruption, uh, disruptive, and, and of course it is not, um, that uh, there was just a, a built-in uh, kind of suspicion of you know, what one more academician has cooked up as his bright idea for people who were busy running real agencies in real countries in real time. You know, there's a gap to get, to get over as well. That's something that uh, the industry tries to have both sides engaged, uh, but but doesn't always succeed at that. So no, those are some, I think, very disorganized and random thoughts about a, a, what started out as a very marginal movement has now become a serious presence in international policymaking and yet needs to do some reassessing, some soul searching and uh, look for new ways to figure out what it's about. So let me continue on that theme, which I think is so interesting and so important. And maybe come back to something you said earlier in that, in that response, which had to do with your perception that very often the, the industry or the movement or whatever you want to call it has uh, a cookbook, to pull up another phrase that you used earlier in our conversation, that you know, maybe doesn't necessarily vary as much as it should from setting to setting, and mm-hmm. maybe doesn't include all of the elements that it ought to or include some that it shouldn't. And I wanted to... Um, pursue that a bit and maybe give you an, another opportunity to 
push the super tanker, if you will, at least nudge it. <laughs> um, but maybe to try to get a little bit more concrete about it. So uh, picking up what you just said again about the way practitioners sometimes react to academics, as I could imagine some of our more practically minded listeners hearing our conversation and thinking, well, this is kind of interesting, but we've got two ivory tower professors having this conversation <laughs> at 30,000 feet or 10,000 meters. What exactly does it mean to change the cookbook or for the movement to rethink its orthodoxy and so forth? So I want to invite you to maybe pick up, and obviously I think part of your message, right, is that the right approach may vary substantially from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, yeah. which makes it impossible. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of the message, there is no one size fits all solution. So I'm not asking for that, but what are some of the tools and techniques and instruments that are not often or not discussed or not discussed as much as they ought to be as potential solutions to corruption that mm -hmm. fall outside of what you suggested was the usual approach consisting of transparency and accountability in, in general mm -hmm. terms and, and so forth. Um, you've yeah. talked a little bit about measures and, and, and so forth uh, and indicators. That's not really what I'm asking about though, right? Because measures and indicators are about doing the diagnosis, you know, figuring out what it is you're dealing with and hopefully to be able to assess progress. But in terms of the, the tools in the toolbox, if you will, are there some tools in the toolbox that you think the existing movement or industry doesn't pay sufficient attention to, that ought to be used more often, that have more potential than people recognize, that maybe ought to be recognized as anti-corruption instruments, even though they're not usually thought of in that way? Again, to try to get this sort of practical ground level as you can, what does all this mean for activists and advocates and reformers and so forth who perceive this is a big problem and want to do something about it? Yeah. Um, the one uh, big tool I think that is there and, and we ignore uh, at our peril to use just a general term to describe it is politics. But the reform movement in, in the United States and much of the West was based on the notion that good government meant keeping politics at arm's length, keeping politics and governing or policy making as separate and distinct um, as, as possible. Uh, in the uh, genesis of contemporary movement or industry, uh, countries um, were barred from uh, intervening in the politics of uh, other countries, and for quite sensible reasons. I mean, that you you couldn't have a Bretton Woods framework without um, you know that kind of uh, uh, bar in the terms of reference from intervening in, in, in the politics of others. Uh, but again, this underwrote a uh, kind of strikingly apolitical, uh, technocratic efficiency-oriented, process-oriented approach to both understanding corruption and devising reform. You know, one of the questions I always want to know is who's got a stake in, the, in, in any reform? You can come up with the best ideas in the world. Who's got a stake in their success? Who's going to feel served by that? Do your reforms address what people understand corruption to be in their day-to-day -day life as they live the experience? Uh, transparency and, um, you know, procurement is a fine thing, but when corruption is the police officer on your street who is always uh, hitting you up for cash uh, or the uh, people in the marketplace who are demanding small payments or else they're going to shut you down, um, you know, do we connect in that way? And that's uh, uh, something that a greater attention to politics, I think, would, uh, would enable us to, to address. Social networks and other. Uh, one of the things that the anti-corruption movement does often is that it uh, will go into a country and it will set up anti-corruption organizations. 
um, um, I was involved with USAID in an effort in Ukraine to set up anti-corruption clubs. And, uh, you know, this was great and it seemed to be succeeding. And then the money ran out and the, the clubs evaporated, uh, you know, immediately. Not because people were, you know, being greedy or phony or were uh, simply dissembling to us, but because, you know, they had to, had to make a living. They had to put food on the table and, um, and so forth. Um, many of the anti-corruption organizations are basically briefcase endeavors on behalf of the uh, kinds of people who see an, a stream of aid and want to tap into it. They uh, operate in and around the national capitals. Do they really get down uh, to the grassroots? I think there's much more we could do with, with social networks, you know, actual natural networks of leadership in communities and in, in, in neighborhoods uh, uh, for that matter. Um, you know, who is it everyone knows and turns to for, uh, for guidance? Uh, who is it everyone knows and turns to for information? Um, you know, these are the people who we maybe ought to be uh, uh, getting on our side and, and giving them real incentives, uh, real resources to put to use. Lest this sound like it replicates the old problems of the anti-poverty programs in American City, well, it does. I mean, and the you know there's no natural answers to these. But uh, you know, rather than having you know the anti-corruption club in Ukraine that uh, did well until the money ran out. Look at the social networks that have been there for generations. Um, you know, sometimes they are seen, and you know, this is the way in which some people misunderstand Guangxi in, in China. Sometimes the, those networks are seen as the framework of corruption, but they're also the framework for a great deal else. And uh, you know, these are uh, uh, ways to convey, convert natural patterns of leadership and action into um, anti-corruption action. And again, um, you know, back to my indicators, I won't beat that horse uh, uh, totally to death, but if you can use them to show that our anti-corruption efforts are concerned with the daily quality of life and that they are producing some real improvements, that strikes me as a, uh, as a uh, very powerful kind of argument. And it's something that we really haven't paid enough attention to. Terrific. So we're, we're almost out of time, and you've already been very generous in, in sharing your time uh, with me and with our listeners. I did want to ask a couple of final questions, and I'll ask them together. Uh, they're related. They're not the same, but I, I view these questions at least somewhat related. So mm -hmm. the first harkens back to something you said very early in our conversation about your own journey, uh, which was that having been doing this for a while and having had two successive generations of academic researchers following the pioneering work that people like you and Susan Rose Ackerman and maybe one or two other people who were working on this issue in the as of the 70s and early 80s following you, you said something like this new work or new, new developments of the research have caused you to rethink some of your own uh, takes on some of these issues, your own perspective on corruption. So one uh, question I think would be interesting to ask as we wrap up our conversation is, can you identify a few places where your own thinking has changed over the course of your time working on this issue, you know, stuff, stuff that maybe you believed in the 80s or early 90s or, or later um, that you don't believe anymore where the, the academic research or, or other factors have caused a significant shift in your thinking. And then the other question is that I just asked you a moment ago to speak maybe directly to some of our listeners who are more practitioner types, but we also, I think, have a fair number of listeners who are academic research types, mm -hmm. especially uh, the younger generation, I think, is well represented in our listening audience. 
And if you now in your exalted uh, position as a, as a senior kind of granddaddy to the field had some advice for the, the young whippersnappers who are coming into mm-hmm. their own in terms of what lines of research you think are especially important, maybe especially fruitful and productive and, and that should really be uh, pursued. And maybe the flip side of that is whether there are also lines of research that you think are maybe superficially attractive, but not a good investment of people's time and, and energy uh, as well, I think that would be really useful. So, let, I mean, we can start focusing on you yourself. What do you feel like you've learned and where has your mind mm. changed over the last 30 odd years and looking ahead <laughs> to the future and giving advice to the next generation, what would you suggest? As for the first, uh, and a few minutes ago, I was very, very critical of the, the TI index, for example. When it came out, I was like every other social scientist, you know, ah, uh, numbers. Let's see what we can do with these numbers. And I um, you know, began running out, well, not only regressions, but uh, uh, sort of scatter plots and such, one of which I still use because I think it illustrates a variety of interesting problems. But uh, then, you know, gradually began to realize what the shortcomings were. I mean, the, you know, the index was, you know, really a tremendous innovation. And uh, um, uh, Lambsdorff, who uh, brought it into being, is a friend of mine, you know, he, um, I think is more sanguine about its value as a measure than I am, but uh, one has to agree that it has helped put the issue on the agenda, keep the issue on the agenda. You know, we wouldn't be here and talking about the industry the way we are um, without that index. So I've had to rethink um, my um, thoughts about uh, data. And I think in particular, where that has led me is toward this notion of, uh, you know, sort of big data about small things, the New York's uh, relatively small things, the New York City Department of Investigation uh, found uh, real patterns of corruption among uh, building inspectors by looking at the neighborhood by neighborhood predicted versus actual numbers of citations for various kinds of uh, violations and where they're exceedingly high or exceedingly low, those were hot spots. You know, that's a, you know, that's a kind of a big data solution to a smaller question, but that's something that w- where, where I came around on. Another corruption in the private sector. I mean, I think here is where looking at the work of Lawrence Lessig and Dennis Thompson, um, you know, and the power of this idea of uh, an institutional corruption uh, was something where I had to do some rethinking. And interestingly enough, that I think helped me see aspects of my influence markets category that I hadn't really uh, you know, gotten, uh, gotten into when I first came up with the typology. As I say, influence markets were not a residual category, not there to sort of complete the dance card of uh, com- you know, comparative cases. But nonetheless, uh, it, there's, there's much more interest and much more uh, potential in studying that kind of uh, institutional corruption in liberal democracies than I think any of us thought um, you know, uh, 15, 20 years ago. Advice, don't get too hung up on the numbers. (laughs) Don't get too hung up on compliance. There's a lot of money uh, in the compliance field, and it's uh, very tempting to follow the trail of breadcrumbs, but I would uh, uh, reluctant to urge too much reliance on that. Another point is, you know, case studies are of immense value, and a lot of uh, younger scholars are doing case studies, but we all need to remember Ted Lowy's old question. What's this case a case of? Case studies need to be put into some kind of framework, some kind of theory or some kind of comparative juxtaposition so that 
when you talk about the you know the number of kinds of arrests for corruption in this province in that country, that's good to know. Now, what do we want to know about that? How, what kind of framework do we want to put that into? And um, a, a final bit of advice, and you know, here is where I was stroking my all too gray beard a moment ago, is. Take your pot shots at me. Uh, take your, you know, be critical of the received wisdom of uh, the older generation. The Lord knows we've got a lot of things wrong. The new generation coming along has, you know, quantitative skills, linguistic skills, uh, conceptual skills. I would be reluctant to go off and 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 trace uh, chase every new intellectual fad as it emerges. But uh, you know. Take a, take a look at the stuff we have left and be critical of it. Beat it with something better. Um, and we will all be better off if, if that's the case. I think that's a great note in which to end our conversation. Uh, inspiring <laughs> words. Go forth, young people, and do your research and, and uh, take down mm-hmm. your elders if you need to. So I, I really, really appreciate uh, your willingness to take your time and share uh, your expertise and insights from, from working in this field for so long before it was fashionable. Uh, I know I've learned uh, from your work generally, but also just from the last 45 minutes of conversation. So, so thank you so much. Uh, our guest on Kickback today, again, has been uh, Michael Johnston, Professor Emeritus at Colgate University. Michael, again, thank you so much for appearing today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Kickback. If you haven't already, follow us on Twitter under at KickbackGAP. We look forward to seeing you under the hashtag KickbackMeetup. If you want to support this podcast even further, write us a review on your favorite podcast platform, or if you can spare a few bucks, become a Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash kickbackpodcast. Kickback is a joint production by the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Köbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me, Christopher Starke, with music by Kaihan Golkar. That's it for today. Have a great week.